Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 14, and today I'm very pleased to have on my podcast Teresa Carl Sanders, who has a new cookbook out, Castle Rock Kitchen, Wicked Good Recipes from the World of Stephen King. Um, And we wanted to highlight this for our Halloween episode, but I also want to mention that Teresa is known very much for her Outlander cookbooks. If you're a fan of the TV show or you've read all the books, um, you'll know her work. Uh, She has two of the Outlander cookbooks, volume one and two, and they're just magnificent. So I was really happy to get a chance to talk to Teresa um, about her previous career, uh, her life in writing, um, and the process of writing and contacting uh, the famous authors that she's based her work on. Uh, she's just a lively, fun uh, guest, and I really, really enjoyed it, having a chance to talk to her. I hope I get to have her on the program again. Her Castle Rock Kitchen cookbook was very important to me, as I'm a really big fan of Stephen King. And so it was really kind of uh, delicious to kind of... Um, go through the cookbook and read some of the recipes and see the references and the notes uh, and excerpts from King's writing there. Um, I have a very fond place for the book in my heart and I have a very loved copy and I know that you will when you get it for yourself. Without further ado, um, I'm just going to go right to my conversation with Teresa and uh, so you can listen to it too and hear what she has to say. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I am very, very honored to have on my program, Teresa Carl Sanders, who is a professional chef, food writer, and unabashed fan of Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series. She lives in a small island in the Salish Sea between Vancouver and Victoria in Canada. She is the author of The Outlander Kitchen Cookbooks, Volumes 1 and 2, and the new Stephen King, Castle Rock Kitchen, Wicked Good Recipes from the World of Stephen King. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your background and um, your work before you started um, cooking. But one of the threads that I have with all my guests that seems to be very prevalent is there was somebody in their past, you know, usually a parent or a grandparent or a relative or friend that kind of inspired them to cooking. Um, Who is that for you and where did cooking begin for you? I always give credit um, for my love of food to my dad, because my dad really loved good food. Um, Even in the 70s, back when it wasn't quite such a a hot topic, he uh, went to Europe for work. Um, He was very lucky and went to Europe a lot for work, and he developed a good um, taste for good wine and good food. And so he and I cooked together and often went shopping down to the docks to get shrimp, down to the bakery to get bread on Sunday morning. always something fresh and good out to the berry out to the berry farms to get strawberries and and blueberries the first of the season um so he was a big influence my mom is you know my mom was the family cook so she's a a big influence too and i was also influenced by my grandmothers there's lots of people in my background um that started me off would you say there's some of them in the castle rock kitchen uh, cookbook oh yes the definitely the voices of my grandmothers as well as my mother comes through Um, It's, you know, it's meant to be a Maine narrator. Um, None of those people I've just talked about are from Maine, but they're all old, practical, um, good, solid thinkers and good, solid cooks. And so that's, they did contribute to the narrative for sure. Now, I want to talk about your background. Um, Before you came into cooking, you have a very impressive background. Uh, uh, What did you do before you started writing? Uh, Before I started writing, I was... uh, 
I guess the very first, my, the be, my most favorite job I ever had was actually, I ran the warehouse for the Vancouver Food Bank back in 1995 through 97. And that was a really satisfying job. Um, but unfortunately it didn't pay the bills in a great way. So I got recruited by FedEx and I ended up uh, running the downtown of Vancouver core for them, wow. their operations manager, um, which was a big job. And I was, I believe 28 or 29 at the time. Um, everybody that worked for me was at least 10 or 15 years older. And it was a really, actually at, at the end of it, I just, I didn't like it. I, we, I thought I was a corporate girl. I got through all the interviews. They thought I was a corporate woman and, and a career woman, but it just didn't work. It was too much um, management. It's not for me. That's what I, that's what I discovered. And, and slowly the creative bit of me came out, which was a real surprise to everyone, <laughs> myself included. Now, is that when you had your big reboot? It is. I, I, um, I had a really bad experience with a very nasty customer in the FedEx office. And I ended up taking a long walk and deciding it wasn't for me. And I quit then. And my husband, I remember he was, I think, happier than myself. Um, he had been wanting me to do it for a long time. And I walked into a bookstore the next day that I had, I gave him two weeks. And then the first day I had, I walked into a bookstore and I found a red and black book with a clock on the cover. And that was Outlander. And that's where my reboot began really. I really leaned in to Outlander for a very long time, two or three years. I've read them over and over. And Diana Gabaldon fans will say the same thing. Many of us have read them over and over and over. Um, and, and, and then that's when we moved from Vancouver to Pender Island. What is it like living on an island? Um, must be, I mean, fantastical. I, must, I can't imagine what it must be like. It, it is. We actually don't live there anymore. The bios all need to be updated. Um, mm -hmm. We moved across the country, but that's another story. But so and we'll get to that. Um, but Pender Island is between Vancouver and Victoria. And so it's a two hour ferry ride from Vancouver. It is very much idyllic on the surface. There's 2,500 people um, during the pandemic, for example, we couldn't leave though. So, unless it was a, an emergency for the first six months. So we were really stuck on the island, but you, oh, wow. but, yeah. Um, but you make good friends and you hopefully don't make too many enemies because you see them almost every day. Um, and it's a big rainforest. That's what, you know, it's just like just north of Seattle. So if you think of the climate of Seattle, it's rainy a lot of the time, but Pender is known as the Mediterranean of Canada. So there's actually all of, trees and the island next door actually has an olive farm where they press olive oil so there's all these little microclimates um and it's really beautiful and pender is actually one of the sunniest places in canada that's i would never expect that that's crazy no i had three olive trees in my backyard i didn't they didn't get they weren't um old enough to really get a lot of olives out of but i got a few olives every year and i would put them in my martini nice <laughs> Your first cookbook, or should I say a pair of cookbooks, uh, were based on the work of um, Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series, and they're called the Outlander Kitchen. Um, they begin with an email to Diana Gabaldon. Can we talk about that? I love that story. Okay, for sure. I like that story too. Um, it's a magical story, and it takes place on Pender. I was out uh, walking with the dog in the woods, and all of a sudden, um, I was a super fan, as I said, a, a, a 
particular dish popped into my head from Voyager, which is the third book in the series. And it's um, pigeon rolls stuffed with pigeons and truffles. And I, and it's just so aromatic, like it's, there's just so many things about those pigeon rolls. <laughs> there's so many levels to them, but I could smell them. I could taste them, everything in the middle of the woods. And I kind of ran home after that um, with the dog in tow. And I was composing an email in my head and, and also writing an, a, a recipe in my head. And, um, and I wrote to Diana Gabaldon and asked her permission to publish it on my food blog. I had a blog at the time, islandvittles.com. It's no longer around. Um, and we put, we put it up and she shared it across her social media and it was really very popular. So I did another recipe. I did Brianna's Brideys which is from Drums of Autumn, which is Brianna's just about to set sail for America and she buys a meat, a hand, a meat hand pie and they're really, really good. Um, and so we put that up and, and then I started asking about a cookbook fishing around. Um, but at that time, Outlander wasn't a TV series yet. So right. there were millions of fans, but there weren't tens of millions of fans, which is what I was told we needed. And when the TV show went into production, that's when very quickly Outlander Kitchen, the first Outlander um, official cookbook came to life. What was it like working with uh, Diana Gabaldon? Like, I want to ask you about the process of the research and kind of um, having things go by her. Was that kind of daunting? Um, well, you know, I've known her, I've had a, a relation, an email relationship with her, and I've met mm -hmm. her several times now, but I, since 2009. So she knows my name. Um, when my email comes up, I like to think she reads it. She doesn't, she doesn't have time to read everybody's. Yeah. Um, and she's always answered me. She's always been very supportive. And she said, yes. I mean, she flew me. She's the one that paid for my airline ticket to fly down to Scottsdale to do the launch of the first Outlander kitchen in her hometown. And we sold 3000 books that night. Um, so she's very smart. She's very quick. She's got good wit. Um, and she's very generous. And so she really gave, once we had, um, once I had the proposal for Outlander Kitchen done, she looked it over, she approved it, gave me her approval, um, and really didn't step in at any other time unless I needed to ask a question. And I do from time to time need to ask a question just for clarification. Um, but she, she, what, I asked her if she wanted to put a recipe in, but she didn't have time because that's when the TV show was really taking off and she was actually even writing for the TV show at that time. Now, speaking of the TV show, um, what was it like for you as a fan of her work to get to finally watch this um, work made into a TV show? Were you, were you kind of nervous about initially watching it? Worried about being disappointed? How did you feel about it? Yeah, I was worried. I, I've seen um, other adaptations of books that I love go really badly. And, um, but I was actually down in San Diego for Comic-Con for the premiere of that very first episode. And we were in an old theater with, I think there were probably three or 400 of us, rabid fans, rabid old lady fans. And, uh, and it was amazing. That, that premiere, that first episode is amazing. And I think Sam Hewen is a really wonderful Jamie. Yes. Um, and I think, and I think, Katrina Balfe is a very, very, very good Claire. Um, I, I don't now, they've unfortunately taken over in my head. So I don't really remember what my Jamie and Claire look like in my head yeah. anymore. 
that's one of, that's one of the things that we lose. But um, I, I just saw the premiere the, or the, the poster for the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, um, with who's in it, I'm more excited than I have been for many seasons. I think, I think I'm, I'm not a terribly visual person. My husband is actually in England right now. He's been gone for over a week. The TV hasn't, I haven't turned the TV on since he's been gone. So I'm a reader. Yeah. Um, and that's what, what Outlander will always be to me. There'll always be books, but I enjoy the series and my husband really enjoys the series. So we watch it together. I am um, never read the books, but um, I would now that I've seen the series and I like the series mm-hmm. very much. I didn't, my wife wanted to watch it. So I was like, okay, let's watch this and see what it's about. And just after the first episode, I got hooked because it's, it's that good of a story and the characters are that good. And I just fell in love with it. I, even like it was heartbreaking for me when some of the characters died. I think when Dougal died, I felt such a loss as though a relative had died. Very much so. Yeah. And, and you actually sound like a book fan. So maybe you should give, give the first one a try anyway, or even just the first three, the first three are almost a complete, like you could stop there and not go on Um, because they're, at, at some point you have to decide if you want to read another thousand pages they're all I, a thousand yeah, pages now <laughs> I, have no, I have no doubt um i would love it i mean i can't imagine not loving them the stories are that good yes they're she really does a good research and and uh and they're smart do you have any favorite characters from the series um that's a hard question i know i'm probably unfair. it is a hard question i mean my very favorite um is oh god sorry i've gone completely blank the frenchman the guy that looks like a frog. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't believe it because he is my very, very favorite in the whole world. What's his name? Anyway. Yeah, um, I, I think I know you're talking about. Yeah. But anyway, let me start again and I'll, and I'll think I can think of another one. You know, one of my very favorite characters is Fergus. Um, I like the growth of Fergus. We meet him as a young boy um, yeah. and he's, and he's a, he could be a very tragic character and he talk about luck. He certainly has a, a lucky day when Jamie finds him. Um, and he goes on and as, as an adult character in the books, he's hilarious. He's very funny. He's also very poignant. And there is a bit of tragicness about him. What a great actor they got to play him as well. He is. He's really good, isn't he? Yeah. It's fantastic. He'll be a star. I'm sure. Now, Sorry. um, did you have to do any kind of historical research for the writing um, to kind of look up a lot of um, like old Scottish and English recipes? Yes, I have a number of cookbooks um, on my shelf that are, you know, Mrs. McNeil's Scottish kitchen from the from the mid 18th century. Um, the problem with those is a lot of them start with something like procure yourself a fresh sheep's head and (laughs) scrape the nostrils scrape the hairs from its nostrils with a spoon (laughs) which is pow saudi which is um something that um diana actually mentions a couple of times across a couple of different books so i modernize things i like to go back in history and and find um, the original recipe, and then I like to work um, from it on there as well. Was the second volume of the cookbooks harder, e- any easier, or harder to write? Um, it was. 
No, it, it, it's just the same. The process is the same. And I've really got a good process now where I, I read on a, on a Kindle and I highlight everything as I go. And then when it comes to um, sort of, once I've finished all the books, then I pour them all into um, an Excel web spreadsheet. And then I start sorting things in the order of a table of contents of cookbooks. And, and how I go through and pick which, you know, in Outlander, for example, bread and ale, like 400 times across 10 books easily, she says bread and ale. And yeah. the same for oatmeal. So you have to pick the really, the best excerpt, the one that is poignant. It's maybe got a conversation or someone's in a temper or some, someone is expressing love. That's what we do around food. We, we generally, around a table, we tend to gather and then important conversations are had with, with family when we're eating together. And that's what I really like about Outlander. Um, Stephen King actually does it quite, quite a bit too. Surprisingly, I was surprised when I started looking. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really the, the art of picking the best excerpt to go with that mention of the food so that everybody, the more you flip through the cookbook, the more you're drawn into the story. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Are you, do you have any um, Scottish heritage? No, uh, well, probably. I'm Danish um, by my, on my mother's side and my father's side is a bit of a mystery because my grandmother was um, an orphan and all of her records were burned in the church fire when she was a young girl. So we don't really know, but I, we suspect that it's either Scottish or um, Irish or something like that. Nice. Some sort of Celtic. So Castle Rock Kitchen, how did that come to be for you? That was after I'd finished the second Outlander cookbook and I was looking for something, a new project. And I knew I wanted to do another fictional cookbook just because um, I'm a fan and I like being in fandoms. And I've discovered that um, it's much easier for me as an author to sell to an existing fandom. And I really want to reach as many people as I can with these books. So when I was trying to decide who I would maybe want to try and work with next, I needed an author who is prolific. So there's lots of books out there that I can draw from. Um, one that has a big fandom and Stephen King, those two certainly tick the boxes very well. And then the third thing um, I need is for them to write about food and to use food as a, as a prop, not uh, rather than just an, as an aside. Um, and so I started reading them and I have read most of them before in my early 20s, um, early 30s, but I hadn't been looking for the food at that point. So I read Carrie. I started and read them in order and Carrie has a hamburger and a root beer and that's quite worrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then so I, I proceeded on and Salem's Lot had a really nice sounding spaghetti sauce. Yeah. Um, and then The Shining, The Shining comes along and there's a lot of food in The Shining. And yes. a lot of cocktails, obviously. 
Um, and then it just got better. The food evolved as I kept reading and um, Stephen King went from a small town main author to a more worldly individual. Um, things started creeping in like in Elevation, which was his last book that was published at the time when I started, um, there's a gourmet Mexican restaurant in Castle Rock, Maine. So that's how it started. And I knew I could, it, I knew I could do it. I, about halfway through, I would say maybe 20 books in, I knew I could do it. And that's when I started putting a proposal together and telling my wonderful agent that she had to figure out how to con get in contact with Stephen King. <laughs> Did you get, have you had a chance to talk to Stephen King? I have. I've spoken on the phone with him for a half an hour. He was very oh. generous. He told stories. Yeah. He's it, Yeah. Everybody always says that. It's like talking really... to God. <laughs> <laughs> and he's so humble and he won't let you call him anything but Steve. Oh. Um, and he told me stories of his mom cooking. So, you know, his mom would, they did not have a lot of money. His mom was a single mother and after work, she would go to the IGA and buy the day old lobster, which was at that point, probably 19 cents a pound. And so over the course of a week, she would just continually add that lobster to the pot. And that's what they, that's what in Castle Rock Kitchen, I've called a poor man's soup. And the story is, I think a lot of Mainers tell that story. This story is when the, when the minister came around on Sunday for tea, then that poor man's soup went back on, out on the porch so that the minister didn't know, or, know they were eating poor people's food and prisoners' oh. food, because that's what lobster was. It was food for prisoners. It's funny how that's so, changed. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not, there's nowhere in the world where lobster is cheap anymore. It's expensive everywhere now. Yeah. Yeah. I've often seen uh, food as a touchstone in uh, touchstone in Stephen King's work. I remember most specifically uh, the stand uh, when a character was trapped in a um, cell and couldn't get out, and uh, he was thinking <laughs> of food. And I, and I still have that image in my mind to this day of um, the ham with red eye gravy, which I've never even had, but it's still he's such a good writer that it sticks in your brain, and so many others. Were there any uh, favorite touchstones in one of his books for you that? as you read through his works, you know, looking for stuff to find? The, um, in, from the stand, Mother Abigail's fried chicken. So she goes on that long walk and, and she's got ferrets or something chasing her and she's killed the chickens anyway. Um, and she makes up a batter and she fries it and then she makes pie. I really like that scene. Um, the other scene I really like, the other thing I really like is the pie from Thinner. Um, and those actually are two books that we didn't end up including in Castle Rock Kitchen just because um, we wanted a focus. We, the editor asked me for a focus and we decided on Maine. So it's a Maine-centric cookbook. It focuses on all the stories he's written that take place in Maine. So those don't include The Stand, for example. Although The Stand does start in Maine and I could have used a couple of things. I decided just to leave The Stand alone for now, <laughs> we'll see what happens with the stand later. Um, and so I left the Dark Tower behind, but I did leave Thinner behind, The Shining, um, Annie Wilkes, you know, and Misery as well. So there's some really iconic books that are that are not in there, but there's some really great opportunities to get to know some of his short stories. I've, I've used some excerpts from short stories um, that you know, a lot, not everybody reads, but I've really enjoyed them. I've read 60 Stephen King books 
over the last three years. And I've multiple times, most of them multiple times. And I've really enjoyed those short stories. I um, remember specifically um, reading, I've reread some of his books so many times. And I remember reading uh, Salem's Lot again and realizing that Barlow, the vampire was down in the bait, like kind of a rec room of the boarding <laughs> house with the canned goods. And somebody who cans, I think I was more angry about that than anything else. I was like, how dare he be near the canned goods? <laughs> Did you have you any, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> Do you have any favorite like um, bits and quotes like that from your rereadings? Did you rediscover his work when you did the research for the book? Oh yeah, very, very much so. And there were so many books that I hadn't read, you know, like 1120, well, I had read 112263 because it's a time travel story and I'll read anything time travel. Um, but I, there's the Dark Tower series I had never read. And I really like fantasy. I know not everybody's fantasy fans, but mm -hmm. I really like fantasy. The Dark Tower series is 8,000 pages worth of reading. It took a very, very, very long time. And again, we didn't include it because it doesn't take place in Maine. Um, but I really, and as well as his mystery series, his, his more modern works, um, I, I wasn't love. as familiar with. And I really, you know, everybody thinks he's a horror writer and he's creepy and he doesn't really write a lot of horror anymore. Yeah. Um, there's always, there's always some sort of, some sort of angle to it, but not the nasty horror of, you know, people, some people don't want to read The Shining or something like that. There's lots of opportunity for new stuff from him. Now, I want to talk with our um, listeners about the style of the book, because, you know, you, you touched on this when you were talking about it earlier. But there's a very specific style and look to it. And I was really kind of, I was really intrigued by it because I loved the way you fleshed out the book and making it look very centric to Castle Rock. Can you talk mm -hmm. about the design? And did you have any problems also additionally with the publishing kind of relaying this to the publisher? No, the publisher, 10 Speed Press, took this book very seriously from the beginning. And I've, um, and I'm very grateful for that. They brought, when I brought the proposal to them, it didn't have the main focus. Um, and, and because of the main focus, it's a much better cookbook. It's a regional cookbook as well as a Stephen King cookbook. And it's an old fashioned region. Re you know, we're talking about a lot of his original stories of when he was younger for in the sort of 50s, 60s. And so it's that old fashioned rural Maine that's really charming. Sorry, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> That's okay. No, no, you, you did it perfectly. Um, I was going to ask you, do you have any favorite now doing the research and cooking? Were, were, were there any recipes in there that you had not really cooked before, like say boiled dinner or um, brown bread? Um, were there anything that you hadn't cooked that, that kind of became new for you? Boiled dinner was not one I had ever heard of before. And I really, um, and I, I really like that. I'm a, I'm a fan of slow all day cooking and I, and it feeds a family for it can it can do for days. So I really enjoyed that. Um, things like potato stuffing, things like some of the pantry ingredients that they use, I was unfamiliar with. And again, it was the pandemic when I was writing, so I was stuck on Pender Island and I couldn't go anywhere. So I had I used the internet. And Maine has an incredible archive. They've archived every agricultural pamphlet, every seafood pamphlet. I found them all online. Um, and I also found Marjorie Standish, who's an old newspaper columnist from Portland. And she used to write a column every Sunday, I think it was, 
um, and good old plain cooking. And those, all of those things came together to really boost the book and make it into a, a main centric book. And then we gave the narrator a voice other than mine, really to put you all the way into that world, all the way into Stephen King. You can, you can have 250 pages where you don't ever have to leave that world. And the narrator's name is Mrs. Garrity. She comes from The Long Walk. It's the first novel Stephen King ever wrote as a 19 year old um, man, but yeah. he published it as under Bachman when he was yeah. in the Bachman books. And Mrs. Garrity is the mother of the protagonist. Uh, she we don't even know her first name. She has maybe six lines of dialogue in the whole book. Yeah. And, um, but what she does have is that she's born and bred Mainer. She's lived there her whole life. She's stuck there because The Long Walk is a dystopian novel. She's not going anywhere. And she also lives in the future. And so she's heard all of those stories of Stephen King's Maine. And so I use her voice. I didn't want to use an existing Stephen King um, character that had a big voice, like let's say Dolores Claiborne, who Stephen King told me is his most main character he's ever written. But I didn't want to copy her voice because A, I wouldn't pull it off and B, B I wouldn't pull it off. And, and I was really scared, I'll be honest. It's a, it's a huge leap <laughs> in my creative writing to think I can do this. And through Mrs. Garrity, I think I, I've managed to pull it off. I'm pretty happy. I'm very happy, actually. And I'm very proud of that voice. And like we said before, it includes my mother, my grandmother, some of the other mothers in in it, for example, there's a group of mothers in it um, and their voices are in there too. And Dolores Claiborne's is definitely in there. When he told me she was the main character, I read that novel two more times. And I don't know if you've ever read it. It's very hard to read. Yeah. It's in first person with almost no punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of that though in the book. Now, what did um, Stephen King think of the book? Uh, were you nervous handing it into him? Oh, you better believe it. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, I think, uh, and I was nervous with Diana Gabaldon as well, right? I mean, it's, it's a big thing to put your creativity in front of somebody who is so awesomely creative. Um, and he really liked it. I mean, he, he sent back a forward, which was, um, is going to help the book enormously. And it's a funny forward. I think it's very state Stephen Kingy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I and and he's tweeted it out on launch day for us. So um, I know he I know he's I know he's happy with it because he's actually given me permission to go through and maybe look and see if I can't find enough food for another one. Who are some of the food writers that inspire you as a chef? As as a chef, I love um, cookbooks. Cookbook authors I love are Dory Greenspan. Um, Erin French, who not everyone may be familiar with. She's a main chef and I had her book, The Lost Kitchen, um, as part of my research. And she makes beautiful food and she writes in a really beautiful way. Um, and then the other one I like, and this one may not be known to everybody either, is Vikram Vidge. And he's a Vancouver chef. He had restaurants, um, he still has them, but really they were really hot in the 90s. And he used to have all these celebrities coming to his restaurant and he was the best host, but he made, he and his wife wrote three cookbooks and they're beautiful Indian cookbooks that I refer to all the time. 
It's funny you mentioned Dory Greenspan. Um, my last three guests all cited her as well. And I had her on the show <laughs> and she was like meeting Stephen King. She was like meeting God and such a nice, also <laughs> humble person like Stephen. She's just such a nice person. And the, yeah, I really love her work. I, I just, she's just outstanding. And just a wonderful writer to read in general. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to ask this question. I know this is kind of a greedy question because you're on tour and you're you're doing work for your cookbook. Um, what's next for you? Well, like I just hinted at, I, Stephen King has given me permission um, to look again. We've got a lot of books that we didn't include because we focused on Maine. Oh. And I've touched um, upon it in the past that I really like fantasy. And I know the Dark Tower fans would like to see a cookbook that is fantasy focused. Ah. And there's lots, there's lots of satellite stories that all refer back to the Dark Tower. The Stand is one of them. Randall Flagg is in both books. So if Randall Flagg is in the book, he, I can use it. Randall Flagg is also in Eyes of the Dragon, which is a more young adult Sort of fantasy that Stephen King wrote for his daughter in the 80s. Yeah. But there's lots of short stories, um, Low Men in Yellow Coats from Hearts of Atlantis and other things. Um, there's lots of material to draw upon. And so I have my spreadsheet and it's 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 actually almost complete. So um, we're just going to see how this book sells. And then um, and then hopefully we'll move on to I don't know what we'll call it. Dark Tower Kitchen. I don't know. Castle Rock Kitchen too. I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm very looking forward to this and I can't wait to see this come out as well. I really loved Castle Rock Kitchen. It was a really beautiful work and I think it's going to do very well. You don't have to worry about that at all. Oh, thank you. That's fine. Um, Jenny Bravo did all the photos. I, the, I have to mention the photos because they are, they bring the whole book together and they give it this creepy, eerie, mouth-watering vibe and it's very hard to pull off with some of those recipes a lot of it is brown food and she's made it all look really good there was a beautiful style to the book and i also noticed the type font um as well and just the whole thing i mean 10 speed press is always good um they're just outstanding all the way around so anything yes, they put out yeah. I, i'm not surprised it's wonderful yeah they um the art director did it an amazing job i've i'm blown away still when i look at it and i've been looking at it for a couple of months now so now you said that you moved from your island where are you living now we now live uh funnily enough not too far from stephen king we've moved to new brunswick <laughs> which is nice new brunswick is across the uh country on the directly on the other side of the country and i was actually just down in bangor maine last weekend i just took a spontaneous road trip down there it took me three hours to get down there so that's how far i live from stephen king's old house he doesn't live there anymore he lives sort of in another town and then a lot spends a lot of his time in florida now that's wonderful <laughs> i i uh teresa i really want to thank you for being on the podcast and i love getting to talk to you about your books and i look forward to seeing more work from you thank you for being on the podcast thank you so much for having me dean that was my conversation with Teresa Carl Sanders. Her book, Castle Rock Kitchen, Wicked Good Recipes, from the works of Stephen King, is out now. You can buy it um, online. Uh, we have links in the bio. You can also get it at all better bookstores. Um, tomorrow, we're going to have uh, two of my favorite guests of all time on the show, 
uh, Ian McEnroe and Mariana Nuno Ruiz McEnroe will be on talking about their book, Dining with the Dead, A Feast for the Souls on the Day of the Dead. Um, I've been really prolific lately talking about this book online and social media, urging people to get it. It's hands down one of my favorite books of all time. I love this book. I want to be buried with it. Um, I will always have a copy of this somewhere within reach. It's just my favorite, one of my favorite books, and I think it's one of the most important uh, works on Mexican cooking available. So I really urge you to get this. Uh, it's a great book. And check out this rebroadcast again tomorrow on the actual Day of the Dead uh, to listen to their conversation with them. It was wonderful. I, I was delighted. I hope I get to have them on the program again. We're so lucky um, to have on the program tomorrow also Andreas Feistad, who is a TV personality who I'm sure you've seen on NPR. And he has a new um, work of food writing called Dinner in Rome. It's a kind of um, history of food of Rome and how it's interconnected with all things. Uh, very important work. Um, I can't really talk about it enough as far as it's just a really great book and so interesting and fascinating and full of just great information. I highly recommend it to you. We also talk about his other books as well and his restaurant. It just, he was a great guest. I was so honored to have him on the program that he was so gracious to give some of his time to be on it. And uh, we'll have links to all that information in his bio as well. That's gonna go tomorrow. So we have a two for tomorrow, a rebroadcast of uh, my talk with um, the authors of Dining with the Dead and also my talk with Andreas Weistad with his new book, Food Writing, Dinner in Rome. So I hope you all had a really great time listening to my, my interview with Teresa Carl Sanders. Um, I hope you all are having a great time today on Halloween and you get to cook some really great stuff. So keep on cooking. I've been getting better, better than you.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 